Welcome to All Saints Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to be mobilized to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit allsaintsokc.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at ASCCOKC. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus, and a part of that is being a rooted and empowered people. We want to be empowered. We want to practice the gifts of the Spirit, celebrate the work of God among His people, and at the same time be deeply rooted in the Scriptures and in church history and in the creedal faith that we say at the Lord's Supper, the Apostles' Creed. We do all those things very intentionally so that we have deep roots, right? And that's for all of us, from the youngest to the oldest, but especially our young people. We want the young people to have those roots that go deep down so that they can become oaks, like Colt's word. If you've got deep roots, then you can weather any storm. Isn't that right, Braden? So in the coming days, if the Lord gives us deep, deep roots that go down into the Word of God and we're watered by the Holy Spirit, then the Lord can bring us through anything, right? So today we're going to look at Stephen's message here in verses 1 through 53 of Acts chapter 7. Last time we looked at the church under pressure, and thank you to Al King for bringing the word last week. Thought it was excellent. I've heard from a number of you saying, man, Al really brought something practical that I'm practicing right now. So grateful for our team, different people that can teach and preach the word of God. So Lord, we uh, thank you for your presence. We thank you for the privilege of worship, the privilege of practicing the gifts of the Holy Spirit, of life with you, and we thank you for the word of God. And I pray that you would give us insatiable hunger and thirst for your word, even today, Lord. I pray for the young people that something would lay hold of them and that they would give themselves to you and give themselves to the word of God. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So here we are, we're looking at 53 verses, and I had mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, and in in the update, I asked you to read this passage, and if you haven't, then you can go read it today or tomorrow. It is an amazing passage of Scripture, because it does, just in a few verses, it offers this overview of salvation history, an overview of what God did with the people of Israel, and it's given by Stephen. And we saw him introduced in chapter 6, if you can remember back a few weeks ago. This guy is a non-apostle, so he's not one of the 12. He, is, he was introduced in chapter 6. He was one of the, the problem solvers. He's a Hellenistic or a Greek-speaking Jew, and he helped take care of the Hellenistic widows. And we read in chapter 6 that he was a man with a good reputation, with Christ-like character. He was full of faith and grace, full of the Holy Spirit. He performed signs and wonders like Jesus. 
And again, he was not an apostle. So the text is showing us that it's not just the apostles who get to do the works of Jesus. It's up to him to choose who he works signs and wonders through and heals the sick. So we're seeing here that he's going to be seized. He's going to be apprehended and brought before the council. We've encountered the, the council in earlier chapters, the Sanhedrin. It's like their religious high court. And they are upset with Stephen as they were upset with John and Peter and the others for going out and filling Jerusalem, filling the city with teaching about Jesus. And so yet again, we're in the courtroom and he's being brought before these leaders and they're going to lay out a number of charges. And I'm just going to read the first section here in a moment. But before we do that, we're going to see in this passage that Stephen is laying out a defense. It's an apology. It's an apologia is what they called it in the ancient world. And he is practicing 1 Peter 3.15. What does 1 Peter 3.15 say? You can write it down and look at it later. But it says basically this. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart and always be ready to make your defense to anyone who wants an answer from you. And so Stephen here is doing that. He's sanctifying, revering Christ in his heart, and then he has an answer for those who are bringing accusation against him. And so we're going to see in this that he's giving a model a biblical explanation that's very reasonable, it's rooted in the Old Testament scriptures, and it's very quick to see in these verses here that he, in fact, is not a blasphemer. They're going to tell him that you're blaspheming against God and against Moses and against the law and against the temple, and so he's going to speak to all four of those things and actually show that he's far from a blasphemer. I mean, this stuff is pouring out of his heart, and he didn't have a little scroll there that he pulled out as he stood before the defense. Where's this word coming from? In his heart. He has stored up, like Al talked about last week, he has hidden the word of God in his heart. So here he is before this intimidating group of experts in the law, and they're accusing him, saying you're a blasphemer. And because his heart is full of the Torah, full of the word of God, then he has an answer. And we'll see at the end, he actually turns it on them and gets himself into heat. So look at verse one here. This is the high priest, Caiaphas, who probably just a few weeks before had condemned Jesus, the same high priest that had brought charges against John and Peter. And I'm gonna read the first eight verses here. We're gonna dig into that and then we'll see where else we can go. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these things so? We're going to go back and look at what question he's asking in particular. But, and Stephen replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our ancestor Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, leave your country and your relatives and go to the land that I will show you. Then he left the country of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After his father died, God had him move from there to this country in which you are now living. 
He did not give him any of it as a heritage, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as his possession and to his descendants after him, even though he had no child. And God spoke in these terms that his descendants would be resident aliens in a country belonging to others who would enslave them and mistreat them during 400 years. But I will judge the people whom they serve, said God, and after that they will come out and worship me in this place. We'll end there and we'll make some observations here, but we'll see that the outline that Stephen's following here as he unpacks his defense, his answer to these leaders, it's going to look at the patriarchs, the fathers of the faith, beginning with Abraham. And that's going to be verses 2 through 8. And he's answering that question at verse 1, which is referring back to a previous chapter. Are these things so? Is it true, Stephen, that you are a blasphemer, that you have spoken against God, you've spoken against Moses, you've spoken against the law, you've spoken against the temple? And he's going to say there at verses 2 and following, absolutely not. He is signaling something about his message. And again, I I want us to dwell with this for a moment. We were singing about it. But friends, the passage really isn't about the Old Testament. It's really not at its essence about the patriarchs, Abraham and Joseph and Moses and David. It's really not about those things. What's this passage about? Look at the word there. And about 10 words in, verse 2, brothers and fathers, listen to me. What's it say about God? The God of glory appeared to our ancestor Abraham. This whole passage is about the God of glory. And what the God of glory has chosen to do through weak, broken pagans. It all starts with this person named Abraham. But again, we just got to dwell with this for a minute. Oftentimes we think a passage is about, ooh, let's get in and learn some things about Abraham and Joseph. No, no, no. The passage is about the glory of God, the God of glory, the transcendent king of the universe that sent his son. That's what the whole passage is about, the glorious God, the holy God. And interestingly, this is the second place in the whole of the Bible where it uses that name of God. Can you think of another place? Those Bible nerds out there? Only one other place. It's a psalm. It's Psalm 29 where it uses this word over and over again, the God of glory thunders. The God of glory speaks. The God of glory shakes the earth with his voice. And so Stephen is familiar with that psalm. And he's referencing in that moment, let me tell you about the God of glory who shakes the earth with his voice. And he's speaking through me right now. So Sanhedrin, hold on to your hats because I'm going to bring the word and he's going to shake you to the core and then you're going to kill me. So I just gave you a little Cliff's Notes of the passage, right? But this is the theme of all scripture, the God of glory. What's the Bible about? What's the Old Testament about? The God of glory. And he appears to Abraham, 
rest of verse 2 there, who is in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And boy, we could get into the, the details here, and, but again, it's the God of glory that we're looking at. And think about this place that he appeared to Abraham. It is as pagan as it gets. The God of glory appears to an idol worshiper, a lost pagan who knew nothing about the God of glory, who was more into worshiping those idols that he could see and carry with him as he moved around. Abraham was a pagan living in a pagan country and city, and that is where the God of glory appeared. It's remarkable, isn't it? The God of glory didn't appear to a place that was already sanctified and appear to someone who is worthy. The God of glory appeared to Abraham, and that's where the whole story, the Old Testament story, begins God calls and transforms and uses broken people. Pagans. Those who are godless, who don't fear God at all. And so the text is showing us here, we'll see it in the book of Acts as it unfolds, God manifesting his presence to people who do not deserve it, who may in fact be the furthest from him. That is what the God of glory does. Some of you are that. You can think back a few years, think, you know what? The God of glory appeared to me, and I was in Mesopotamia, and I was a mess. I was lost, broken, strung out, addicted, and the God of glory appeared to me. And this is what we want to see in the coming days. We want to see the God of glory appear to our friends, to our classmates, to our colleagues, and totally rearrange their lives. Turn their life upside down because when you encounter the God of glory, that's what happens. This is what we are reading our Bibles daily for. We're praying, God of glory, appear to me. I need you to save me again tomorrow and the next day, but I need you to intervene in my family. I need you to intervene in my friends at work. I need you to save people and transform them. Now, this is queuing up something. What's going to happen in just a couple of chapters? Some of you familiar with Acts. Who is it that encounters the God of glory? Saul. And we're going to see. This is why we're dwelling with this for a moment. Stephen is a key figure. Stephen is the first Christian martyr. He's the first person that had the opportunity to give his life after the resurrection of Jesus, and it's his blood. Like the early church father said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so it's his blood that spilled in the presence of Saul who gives agreement to it. And what happens to Saul in a short period of time? He saw Stephen die I'm preaching next week's message. But he saw that happen. He saw the faith of this young man, the tenacity, the word of God in him pouring out like fire, and it unleashed something in Saul. Saul was a murderer. He was a killer. He was a viper. He was the terror 
to the early church. And God said to him, I want you. I'm actually going to appear to you. Through the resurrected Jesus, the God of glory is going to appear. I'm going to rearrange your life. And I'm going to send you into the Gentile world. And you're going to bring the gospel. And history will never be the same. Friends, why, why does God pick people like this? He picked Abraham. In the modern New York City, you know, the place that's the bleakest and least likely. All right, looking over this. Verses 3 through 5. God called Abraham and Sarah to leave the father's land. And the point of the passage is Abraham had to bank on God's promise. He had to take a journey by faith. And so Romans 4 and other places in the New Testament are going to unpack it that he becomes the father of faith. Sarah becomes the mother of faith as an example. And the text goes on to say they didn't even inherit a foot of the land that they were promised. But even in light of that, they journeyed. They followed the God of glory because he entered their lives, rearranged their lives, spoke to them, gave them promises. You're going to be the father and mother of many people like the stars of the sky, like the sand on the seashore, and the Messiah is actually going to come through you. They're saying, what? We're old. We're about to die. We don't, we don't have the, the kid that needs to bring forth the Messiah. It's the Lord's ways. They're different, aren't they? The Lord's ways a little different than yours and mine? Yeah. Verses 9 through 16, we're not going to go into it. We're going to wrap up here in a minute. But it's about Joseph and man. Good stuff. Again, we get to see in this saga of Joseph that God makes promises and then Joseph goes to prison and has to cling to the promises and it's only by doing that do they come to fruition. Verses 17 through 43, it's the longest in the whole passage here. It's about Moses, the rejected deliverer, Why do you think it's about Moses? Remember the four things that he's being accused of blaspheming in these arenas? What are they? God, Moses, the law, and the temple. So he is dwelling on Moses just to show clearly, I am not speaking against Moses. I love Moses. I'm a child of Moses' faith. And so for Verses 17 to 43, he unpacks the life of Moses in three parts, 40 years each. You can go back and look at that. But I want us to look down at verse 34. Again, we're just going to be able to touch on a few things, but look at verse 34. Actually, let's rewind a little bit. It's a familiar story. This is the Prince of Egypt story, right? And this is Stephen pointing out this key moment here. The Lord appears in the wilderness to Moses. Look at verse 32. He's seeing this burning bush, and God, the God of glory, appears to another unlikely candidate here. I am the God of your ancestors, 
the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses began to tremble and didn't dare to look. And then what's the Lord say to him at verse 33? Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. So Stephen knows his stuff, and what he's saying to the Sanhedrin here is God doesn't need a temple. Out in the wilderness, where there is no temple, where there is no organization that you, in fact, have brought, the Lord appeared to someone through a burning bush. And that place in the desert is holy ground. It's like the holy of holies in the wilderness. And so Stephen is beginning to ratchet up and tighten his argument to the Sanhedrin who are so attached to a temple, to a building, to something that they can control. And Stephen is saying, friends, the presence of God is uncontrollable. Where God shows up, it's holy. Doesn't matter if it's in the wilderness, in a city. Friends, where God shows up in your life, where God shows up on a campus, where God shows up, I remember someone singing a song about it in a fuel station bathroom. The presence of God can come anywhere. The presence of God can enter a crack house. Someone addicted to crack, strung out, cursed God, and the presence of the living God comes into that crack house and it becomes a holy place. And he says, your time's up. I'm here. I want you. Give your life to Christ. Friends, the passage is showing us where God goes, holiness comes. And Stephen is trying to get them to see as he's telling this story, even beginning with Moses, who they claim to love, He's like, friends, you've missed it. God's presence cannot be contained. So on that note, let's skip all the way to the end. He's going to look at David and Solomon, and I'm sorry that we're not able to dig deeper into this, but verses 44 to 50. We're going to end with this, right? I'm going to read this. Verse 44. Our ancestors, and again, he's walking through all of these key figures, these key moments, these central themes in the Old Testament. Our ancestors had the tent of testimony in the wilderness. As God directed when he spoke to Moses, ordering him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Our ancestors in turn brought it with Joshua when they dispossessed the people's whom God drove out before our ancestors. And it was there until the time of David who found favor with God and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the house of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Get this, key moment in his whole defense. Verse 48, yet the most high does not dwell in houses made with human hands. He's saying, not my idea. You love the prophets, right? Look at what Isaiah says in chapter 66. Heaven is my throne. This is the word of Isaiah, the word of the Lord coming through him. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make 
all these things. So friends, the passage is about the God of glory who cannot be contained in any building, cannot be controlled by the Sanhedrin, cannot be controlled by any branch of the current church. The Lord shatters anything that we try, any box we try to put God in, the God of glory, he blows out of it. Friends, we can't control God. We cannot coerce, control, think that we've got God in our theological system. Stephen is saying we are dealing with the God who fills the highest heaven. He perches his feet on the earth. How could we ever build a home for him? Let's stand. Worship team can come up. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage. Pray that it would ring in our ears and our hearts. The Most High does not dwell in any house. And we just acknowledge you are the God of glory. You surpass, you transcend, you're bigger than any box we try to put you in. And I pray for a revelation of that, even this week, that we would be meditating on your word, meditating on the God of glory. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus, the Lord of glory. Amen. So next week, we're going to look at Stephen and praise the Lord at seven verses. Next week, not 53. Can I get an amen? It's not 53 verses, it's seven, and we're going to look at the martyrdom of Stephen. And friends, it's powerful because where there's opposition and persecution, heaven opens up. It's a principle where there's opposition against the church, God opens heaven and glorious things happen.